The Brian McClanahan Show, episode 208. Are you ready to think locally and act locally? Welcome to The Brian McClanahan Show. Welcome back to The Brian McClanahan Show. Glad to have you back on the program. Very glad to be here. Don't forget to follow me on Twitter at Brian McClanahan. Like my Facebook page at Brian McClanahan. And of course, subscribe to my YouTube page at Brian McClanahan. You can also support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to McClanahanAcademy.com. That's McClanahanAcademy.com. You can enroll for free, as always. And those that do enroll get the best deals on future courses. I do have one coming out in the spring, probably mid-March. I've also got five courses for sale there. And uh, that any proceeds do help support the show. You can also support the show by going to BrianMcClanahan.com forward slash support. You can throw a few pennies my way, help keep these lights on if you're watching the podcast help keep the podcast going, and you can always support The Brian McClanahan Show by going to LearnTrueHistory.com, LearnTrueHistory.com. That is my affiliate link for Tom Woods Liberty Classroom. It is a great website. You get about 20 courses for um, very little money, and uh, I do teach there with Tom Woods, Kevin Goodsman, Bob Murphy, Brad Berzer, Jason Jewell, a whole bunch of great faculty members, uh, Jeff Herbner. It's economics, philosophy, history, so... um, it's fantastic. The classes I offer at McClanahan Academy are solely for McC- offered at McClanahan Academy, but I also have some other classes at, uh, at LearnTrueHistory.com. So um, you want to get both. You want to get both. And, of course, you can always get my Brian McClanahan logo on your T-shirts, electronic skins for your devices, uh, you know, uh, stickers, all of that stuff at RedBubble.com. Just go out there to RedBubble.com, do a search for my name, and you'll have my logo and, of course, you can sport that around and help support the show that way and help get people listening. And always please rate the show on your favorite uh, podcast website. The more reviews, the better. The higher reviews, the better. And the more people see it. And so there we go. We've got more listeners and more people experiencing the Brian McClanahan Show. Okay. I want to focus on an article today. It's a, it's a thorny issue. And I don't want to... I want to talk about this in relation to history because there's a problem with this particular article that and it passes for quote unquote conservatism, but it's not. And that's that's problematic moving forward um, because if we if we view history in this particular way, we're doomed to be overrun by the by the progressives uh, because we've essentially adopted their language. And that's a major problem in how we discuss historical events, how we discuss the United States. Because if we accept this position, we've essentially accepted accepted the Lewis Hart's position that uh, all American history is leftist. There isn't any conservative American history. It's all leftist. It's all a crusading zeal. And so, therefore, um, we've got a, uh, a push, a leftist push, from the beginning of the founding of the United States to the present. That's very problematic. Um, so I, I want to focus on it from that direction and go after the Jaffites, the Straussians, because essentially that's the same direction they're pushing America towards. It passes for conservatism, but it's not conservatism. So I want to talk about that and hit it head on with this particular piece, which doesn't really go after that or really uh, say that outright, but this is this is the direction the piece is taking us. And it's a piece that appeared in the Federalist um, let's see, on January 31st by Kyle Salmon. Kyle Salmon is a lawyer and writer from Pennsylvania and the co-host of the Conservative Minds podcast. 
So, the conservative minds, therein lies one of the major problems. So, the title of the piece, New York's New Law is Abortions, John C. Calhoun Moment. So, from the beginning, John C. Calhoun is going to be the enemy. This is highly problematic. It's highly problematic because it is a cartoonish version of American history. And for years, even recently, there was a book by Garland Tucker that came out after uh, The Forgotten Conservatives in American History, which I wrote with Clyde Wilson. Of course, we've got a chapter on Calhoun, which is fantastic in that book. I didn't write it. Clyde Wilson did. If you want anything on, on Calhoun, you read Clyde Wilson. I mean, the man edited the John C. Calhoun papers. Um, so we've got a chapter on Calhoun. But then Garland Tucker, which was published by ISI, I believe, if my memory serves me correctly, this Conservative Heroes book, has a chapter on John C. Calhoun. So we still have conservatives that admire Calhoun, but yet there's this other strain of conservatism that despises him because they are Straussians, because they're Jaffites, because they have a, a poor understanding of American history. They've absorbed the belief that somehow when Abraham Lincoln issued the Gettysburg Address, which is ironic, just yesterday was Lincoln's birthday. When Abraham Lincoln issued the Gettysburg Address, that was the seminal expression of American conservatism. Now, um, it's laughable, idiotic. Of course, one of the classes I offer at McClanahan Academy is on the Declaration and how Lincoln distorted that. So if you want my uh, opinion on that, my position on it, and go ahead and get that class. It's one of the cheaper classes. It's 30 bucks. And you can always get a one thing I didn't mention. You can always get 10% off by just using the coupon code podcast at checkout if you want to. So get that class. But I'm going to touch on this briefly in this particular episode of the Brian McClanahan Show. So we're going to start with uh, a paragraph, the, the fourth paragraph of the piece. And he gets into the fact that New York passes horrible law. We've got similar laws now on the books, or at least being proposed in Vermont and Virginia. We all saw what uh, uh, Northam was saying about this new uh, Virginia law, which was knocked down. It didn't pass. So we all know what's coming. I mean, the, the, the push on the left uh, in terms of these particular laws is abhorrent. We know this. We know what's coming. Um, but... The, the false dichotomy of the two, and then not just that, I don't even want to get into that part of this, but um, to say that John C. Calhoun would have favored these particular pieces of legislation is ridiculous. And uh, to compare what's going on in the 1830s with what's happening now is also ridiculous. But not just that, uh, we have a, a fake characterization of what American history is all about. So first, he says, it has become common to compare the fight over abortion to the fight over slavery, and rightly so. Like abortion advocates, slavery supporters base their position on denying the basic human rights of a certain subset of humans. But that's not what's happening with, with these two things. One is advocating the death of people. The other wasn't. I mean, one is infanticide. The other was not genocide. Um, but, I mean, this is where we, it's almost hysterical how we've gotten to, and he's accepted a modern narrative of things. Even when they recognize such people as fully human, they subordinated their human rights to the rights of other more powerful people. We can learn from the 19th century's fight for freedom, especially as the fight for life in our own time parallels it in so many ways. One of the questions I would ask uh, Mr. Salmon, 
is if uh, you look at statistics, world statistics for this particular problem, and you know China, for example, has the highest number of abortions in the world. Are we advocating going into China and um, you know taking over China so that uh, they can't do this anymore? I mean, a horrible situation. But where where our outrage? And I know we'd say, well, I don't live in China. I live here in the United States, and so I can determine what happens in the United States. But um, and, and as horrible as it may seem, you see, what we've done with this entire issue is nationalized everything. This is another evidence, another example of nationalization of the problems of it. You've got people on both sides pushing a nationalist message. And we can certainly say that the right to life is something that um, any sane person would support. That this particular law in New York is horrible, uh, that it's an it's an, it's a inhuman or inhumane both um, and but we do have to look at our federal republic and of course the hypocrisy on the left is that they only support federalism when it suits their needs they don't support it otherwise the hypocrisy on the right is the same thing we only support federalism when it supports their needs we don't support it otherwise my argument would be going and change New York um, and I know these saying well it's coming in other states um, it could be, but then it's also it was also knocked down in Virginia. So, um, yeah, it's it's a, it's a problem. We need to change minds, change hearts, change values. That's an issue, um, and the same issue that was being confronted in the 1830s. In a way, uh, and I I do agree with that in a way, but not in the way he's portraying it. So um he begins the piece with a little historical background he says as with the debate over abortion the, the debate over slavery began in america mostly among moderates partly this was because then as now the people most deeply harmed by the institution were not consulted uh, among the voices that were allowed to be heard most wanted gradual changes if they wanted changes at all by the time the constitution was written slavery had already declined in the northern states Partially, this was because their climate and terrain did not lend themselves to the South's large-scale plantation economies. But there was also more to it than that. Slave owners could still benefit from slavery on a small scale. Anyone who had servants could certainly save money by not paying them. But the moral case against slavery was beginning to take hold. Beginning with the 1688 address from the Germantown Quaker meeting in Philadelphia, there slowly grew sentiment that enslaving our fellow human beings or humans was wrong. This sentiment was not restricted in the North. Much as they enjoyed the fruits of other people's involuntary labor, the owners of the great estates of the South could not help but see the problem. As Americans fought for their freedom and the natural rights of mankind in the Revolution. Here is one of the major problems with his entire position on the early republic, early federal republic. Um, there's no, there is no evidence that anyone in the founding generation was fighting for the, quote, natural rights of mankind. And you can say, well, yeah, but, but what about the Declaration? It says we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Um, but when you look at practi- <laughs> practical, okay, and you see what people were saying, they were saying we're fighting for the rights of Englishmen, for the for civil liberties, the ancient liberties of the English people, these kind of things, the ancient constitutions. The ancient constitutions is one that was used more often than not. What they're talking about there is the Magna Charta and the English Bill of Rights, which everyone knew um, was something entirely different than the natural rights of mankind. Uh, even John Hancock and Sam Adams 
had slaves. They brought them to the uh, Continental Congress. Uh, and Jefferson's line, and I've discussed this again in the, in the course of the Declaration, that you know, all men are created equal. Everyone understood what that meant at the time, that men were equal under the law. That's all that meant. It's, all it clearly, it's clearly all that meant. Jefferson even said it later on. That's all that meant. He didn't mean any kind of grand expression of natural rights of mankind that people took it to mean. This is, this is Salmon digesting Abraham Lincoln and saying, well, here we go. This is, what the, this is what the founding meant. Even Gary Wills, who wrote the most popular book on the Gettysburg Address, said that Lincoln revolutionized the revolution that he created something entirely new, that everyone knew. That's not what the revolution meant in 1776. But here we have a problem with modern, quote-unquote, conservatives. They don't know anything. This is a ridiculous reading of American history. When I say ridiculous, I mean that. It's, it's subject to ridicule because it's stupid. Only through willful blindness can anyone fail to see that their slaves could turn the same arguments back on them. As in the North, many Southerners favored a gradual emancipation. No drastic changes, as the Quakers and other abolitionists proposed, and as the slaves have certainly have preferred. Now, this is an interesting position, because certainly the Quakers, and he's writing from Pennsylvania, so he thinks he has this moral high ground here. I'm writing from Pennsylvania, I of these Quakers. Um, I guess he doesn't know much about Quaker history, because there certainly was a group of Quakers that were abolitionists. There's, there's no doubt about that. There was a subset of the Quaker faith that were abolitionists. And if you read David Hackett Fisher's Albion Seed, he, you get the image of the Quakers as reciprocal libertarians. Uh, they certainly, uh, a section, a subset of the Quakers certainly opposed slavery on moral grounds and religious grounds, and rightfully so. Um, but most Quakers didn't subscribe to that. Uh, in fact, there is a book, and the title of the book is Escaping Me, uh, on a Quaker plantation in New York that was a slaveholding plantation, even at this particular time. And slavery was expanding in some northern states, even at this time. Um, and so these are Quakers. John Dickinson, one of the most important members of the founding generation, had Quaker lineage, was a slave owner. Uh, so Quakers owned slaves. Uh, and so to say that as Quakers and other abolitionists, he's painting this with broad strokes. There's, no, there's not even any complexity here. There were some Quakers that favored this position. And certainly there were some abolitionists. We're talking about less than 1% of the entire American population in the 18th century. I mean, you, you probably couldn't even find in most places, anyone who would favor the positions of the Quakers or the abolitionists. Now, certainly, uh, there were Southerners. In fact, almost all the early, early abolitionist societies were in the South. In fact, 100 of the first 130 were in the South. So uh, abolition was not something coming out of the North, as this individual talks about, but actually coming out of the South. So he has the entire history of the, of the anti-slavery, the origins of anti-slavery thought flipped on its head. He, he doesn't even know what he's talking about. That's a problem when he's professing to be someone who knows history here. We have all these northerners. 
uh, saying that uh, that uh, we were. But uh, the South also supported what the North thought. No, it's the North supported what the th- what the South thought at that point. Uh, more typical were slave owners like Thomas Jefferson, who, paraphrasing Suetonius, famously said of slavery, we have the wolf by the ear, and we can either hold him nor safely let him go. Justice is in one scale and self-preservation in the other. So this is, this is an interesting, mean, look, the North was able to gradually abolish slavery over time, gradual emancipation. Why did they want to gradually do it? Because they understood that in order to to get rid of a slave population that had no education, no property, they weren't integrated into society. You needed to do this gradually so these people would be accepted in society. Immediate emancipation was abs- what Jefferson is saying. It's absolute suicide. Not because these people would necessarily rebel, but what are you going to do with them? They were they were slaves. And then the next day they're not, and so then you have a situation like you saw in Reconstruction in the South, where you have violence. You have, uh, if, if these people now are fully participating in American political life without any education, property, or a fundamental understanding of British and then American, Anglo-American government and liberty, what do you have? And they're easily used as pawns in a bigger game for political power. So what do you do? Well, the North figured this out. You, you abolish it gradually, and you integrate these people into society, which is essentially what you need to do anytime you have a situation like this. It's a tough situation, a hard thing to do. It's a hard thing to look back on it in the 21st century and say, you know, this is probably what we, what we should have done. Uh, the North knew this, and they were allowed to do it. The South was never allowed to do that. So then he says, from necessary evil to positive good. The trajectory toward freedom was not maintained. Part of the reason was economic. Historians used to point to the invention of the cotton gin <clears throat> as the change that made slavery so profitable that slave owners never again considered giving it up. That is partly true, and other economic changes added to the problem. The closing of the international slave trade in 1808 made existing slaves more valuable, meaning their owners were even more reluctant to let them go free. So here he's saying that slave owners could sell slaves. This is why they didn't want to let them go. In fact, what's interesting is that... Um, Historians of slavery have actually found that sugar, not cotton, was the main profit motive, the main driving economic motive for planters. Cotton uh, was problematic because uh, even though it made people a lot of money, everyone was growing it, and so the price fluctuated. But the people that were really making the dough were sugar planters. And certainly, slavery could be an economic drag, depending on how profitable your farm was. It wasn't always profitable. I mean, sometimes there, there were situations it wasn't. We do know, though, if you look at uh, Time on the Cross, for example, uh, Fulgen and Engerman pointed out that slavery was fairly profitable. I mean, it was a labor institution that was profitable. No different than labor institutions that were profitable in the North. And they're comparing apples to apples. And this is when he gets into John C. Calhoun, he points, he skips over that part. Uh, when when Calhoun talks about the positive good. Um, anyways, what would happen after slavery began to concern slave owners too? The bloody revolution in Haiti and smaller slave revolts in the United States weighed heavily on their minds. This is true, but see, the bloody revolution in Haiti was caused not by emancipation, but by um, the fact that you had a slave uprising, right? I mean, this is, and so Southerners feared these things, and rightly so. I mean, th- there's there's evidence, even into the 18th, some of this stuff was, was fantastic and fabricated, and people just were suspicious. This is conspiracy theories, all these kind of things. But there were 
all kinds of examples where Southerners were looking at the North, uh, you know, sending uh, um, poisons into the South and firearms and other things. And so Southerners are saying, my gosh, these people are trying to kill us. Well, what do you expect them to do at that point then? Was this fantastic? Was this far-fetched? They're looking at self-preservation. Uh, and so we, we don't, we don't take that into account. If the people who were held in bondage were freed and granted equal rights, what would be the fate of those who unjustly, unjustly held them in chains for so many generations? Uh, that's not the fear. Uh, that, that wasn't the fear at all. If they were freed, that there was going to be some kind of slave insurrection. They weren't going to be slaves anymore. Um, there was a fear, of course, of a potential race war. People did talk about it. Uh, and so that's where you got into colonization and other things. Um, so these were big questions. I mean, how, how do you do these things? How, how, do you, how do you abolish the institution humanely and, to the, uh, as Jefferson said, um, with the greatest benefit to both groups? Northerners were wrestling with this first, as I'm going to talk about. At the same time, the traditional justification of slavery began to wear thin. At one time, Christian slave owners considered owning Africans to be moral because the slaves were heathens. But by the 1800s, most slaves worshipped the same God, often the same Christian denomination, as their masters. And even had slave preachers spreading the word. Um, he, he has a very limited understanding here um, of pro-slavery ideology. It's clear in this particular, um, this particular piece. First of all, uh, most of the slaves actually went to churches with their masters. I mean, the churches were integrated. And one of the greatest, uh, if you look, read C. Van Woodward, for example, he talks about this in The Strange Career of Jim Crow. He talks about how uh, churches, after the war, became segregated. Before the war, they were integrated. After the war, they're segregated. And he said that was one of the greatest problems facing the South is because you lost that community in the Christian faith, that these segregated churches, not by law, not by law, but by fact, by choice, began to wear down the familiar relations of these groups of people. And um, this, is, this is interesting uh, because, you know, on your, on your plantation you had one chapel and everyone went to the same church. Everyone went to the same church. The church wasn't segregated. But after the war, you had segregated churches. And so most slaves were actually getting the word of God from white churches, from white churches. Now, you did have some, some slave ministers, some, but not many. Um, and so uh, that, was, that was part of it. Some free blacks who were also ministers as well uh, in the South. In fact, you know, the, the South had a larger free black population than the North. Um, it's something that, you know, people often miss, but they did. They did. Um, okay. Likewise, claims of Africans' inherent inferiority cannot be taken seriously as black slaves learn trades and perform them at the same level as white tradesmen. Um, what's interesting about that particular statement is Southerners knew this. Uh, and, uh, for example, you know, th one of the best examples is a former slave named Horace King in the, the Columbus, Georgia area who built bridges. He was, a, he was a, uh, an engineer, essentially. And he eventually was freed, but he learned the trade as a slave. And this happened all over the South. Uh, you had slaves doing uh, pretty intricate work. Um, King uh, built the staircase at the Alabama Capitol, uh, which is a beautiful piece of architecture, um, not just bridges, but also that. So you had slaves doing some pretty important jobs. Even, and, and so Southerners understood that uh, slaves were extremely capable. Um, and uh, that, 
that was well understood, not just north, but also uh, uh, not just south, but also north. I should say, flip it on its head. As these justifications faded away, some might have taken it as a reason to end the practice altogether. Instead, a new generation of slavery advocates arose that supported the institution even more than their fathers and grandfathers had. This is where he gets into John C. Calhoun, but this is where he doesn't understand, again, pro-slavery ideology. Pro-slavery ideology was born in the North. In fact, the first pro-slavery, first pro-slavery pamphlet in American history was written in 1701 in Massachusetts by a man named John Saffin. And John Saffin, he, he wrote this thing. He was a northern minister. And, I mean, if you compare it to what John C. Calhoun is going to say in 18, 1837 in the Positive Good Speech, John Saffin could have written this. And it's amazing because, of course, John C. Calhoun attended college at Yale in Connecticut, where he was introduced to pro-slavery ideology. You see, pro-slavery ideology was born in the North. In the 1830s, even before that, it was Northerners who were coming out with the most ardent defenses of pro-slavery ideology, because this is where the epicenter of the abolition movement uh, in the, the modern abolition movement in the 19th century was. And so Northerners were coming up with defenses of slavery that justified it based on Christian grounds, that justified it based on race, that justified it based on anything you can think of. Northerners were the ones who were saying these things first, not John C. Calhoun. John C. Calhoun was not coming up with anything new in 1837. Uh, as as uh, Clyde Wilson talks about in, uh, in a piece entitled, uh, I'm paraphrasing, John C. Calhoun, the positive good, what he said. He's saying, look, Calhoun was simply just taking the issue head-on, which nobody else in the Senate had bothered to do or in the Congress had bothered to do at that point. He's simply confronting it head-on. But people had already confronted it head-on in Massachusetts and Connecticut and others because they looked at the abolitionists as dangerous. Um, And so this is a pretty shoddy reading of American history. It's a cartoon version of American history, which is problematic we need to understand the complexities of what was going on in the 1837s, 1837, to understand the institution and what's happening here. So he says that this positive good speech was a turning point. It signaled that Calhoun and others like him were committed to their cause and no reason, science, or moral suasion could divert them from their chosen path. Slavery advocates now proclaim the institution as actually superior to that of any other sort of labor arrangement. And Calhoun did point out in this positive good speech uh, that, you know, you look at European laboring class and they suffer, uh, that slavery was a better institution. This is an argument the Southerners made. And Fogel and Engerman went back and Tom on the cross and said, well, comparing the living standards and conditions of the two laboring classes, the Southerners might have had a point. But, of course, this is a moral situation. It's a moral situation. We can't compare the two because of the moral situation. Uh, and that's where we get hung up on these things. Um, so he goes on, he says, what now? Comparing slavery, abortion to slavery is only meaning is only meaningful. We can learn something from it. He says, uh, it is a mistake to say that our civil war was inevitable, but once the slave power began to embrace slavery as a positive good, once it began to see it as ended itself and not merely as a means to achieve financial comfort, the two sides were no longer aiming at the same eventual result and negotiated solution became a lot less likely. 
No, he's, he's putting all the blame back on the South. Once the slave power, this is, I mean, you might as well be reading abolitionist literature from the 1850s. This is the problem with, with conservatives nowadays. They don't understand the complexity of history. And I remember there was a, uh, Thomas Fleming wrote a book, um, who's, he's now dead, not Tom Fleming from Rockford Institute, but Tom Fleming, the author, uh, placing the blame of the war on the abolitionists. He published this thing just a few years ago, and he was excoriated for this. How dare he say something like this? But the South was willing to negotiate all the time. They were willing to negotiate. You see, it wasn't that they were worried about the states because abolitionists even said we can't we can't touch slavery in the states. Many of them said that. Uh, but we can ex- we can uh, make it to where we can extend it out to the territories. That was the real issue. It was slavery was important, and I've done this on a podcast already. I'm not going to get back into it. It's why slavery because of the extension of the institution. That was the real issue. It was principle over substance. Um, you know, Southerners said we, we, we have to be able to bring our slave property in the territories, even if it can't exist there, even if plantation labor won't exist. And Northerners were, were uh, not willing to accept that position because of political power. This is Michael Holt. I mean, all this stuff, all these things he's saying, these are not conservative positions. These are leftist positions. You might as well have had a leftist like uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez write this particular piece. Uh, they're all arguing from the same fundamental position, wrong position, that America is a leftist country from the beginning. And so that's my issue with this particular piece. Yes, the New York law is abhorrent. Uh, Yes, we should do all we can to call it that. But we do have a federal republic, and this is where people get caught up in this. We do have a federal republic. Uh, This particular issue should have never been a national issue to begin with. Um, and the 1973 Supreme Court case, Roe v. Wade, made it a national issue when it never was a national issue. That was a faulty understanding of the Constitution at that point. Um, and so we, we, have, we could have states where this particular uh, subject is more restrictive, but the Supreme Court continually knocks that down. On the other hand, they agree with this, with this New York, they would agree with this New York law, um, which is horrible because of nationalism, you see. It's, that is the evil in all of this. It's the evil in all of this. And pushing this, this myth of American history doesn't do anyone any good because it just creates more problems. Um, it just, it, it's, it's a cartoonish version of America, a cartoonish version of the founding, a cartoonish version of what was going on in the 1850s and the 1830s, and has very limited understanding of any type of complexity to American history. Obviously, Mr. Uh, Salmon has never read Larry Tize's pro-slavery. Because if he had, he wouldn't come up, he wouldn't have written this piece. He wouldn't have written it at all. Because he would have had a much deeper understanding for what was happening in America in the 1830s and what, Cal- what Calhoun's position wasn't new, it wasn't unique. He was simply just confronting something that he saw as a problem, and that was the political abolitionist movement the political abolitionist movement, which he saw as dangerous. Uh, They were reformers, and he saw that a national reform movement as dangerous for the stability of the United States. So who's right in that? I mean, and he says, I mean, Salmon says, well, look, this could lead to another civil war because we've got abolitionists out there, the abortion, the the anti-abortion abolitionists who are going to push a position. We've got the other people. And basically saying the, the abortionists are John C. Calhoun. Um, I mean, in some ways, they are the cons- look. They're they're trying to conserve the, the status quo in the states and where they exist. Um, 
But uh, regardless, this this is a, a, a an understanding of American history that causes all kinds of problems for our for our for a fruitful discussion of these particular issues. So that's my position on all this. Um, it's a thorny issue, a delicate issue, one that uh, you, you, it's a minefield. I mean, you got to you got to tread very carefully because uh, I mean, because of modern sentiment, uh, saying anything positive about John C. Calhoun would immediately get you labeled something. All that I'm doing here is saying that uh, Calhoun had a lot of valuable things to say about American government, um, and we can take these particular statements and look at him within the context of the time and understand what he's doing to try to gain an understanding, which is what the historian's job is. All right, well, I will see you next time on The Brian McClendon Show.